Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Michael Peterson, the president of Androscoggin Valley Hospital in Berlin, New Hampshire. Androscoggin Valley Hospital is part of North Country Healthcare, a system of four critical access hospitals in the North Country of New Hampshire. In this podcast, I talk with Mike about his career, which includes 28 years of service to the Eastern Maine Health System, where he worked his way up from part-time work in college through being a licensed social worker, later moving into information systems, and then back to operations, to ultimately being the chief operating officer at Sebastocook Valley Health before coming to Androscoggin in 2015. I really enjoyed talking with Mike, and I think you will especially enjoy his insights about leadership and the experience of being a new hospital president. I have produced an extended version of the interview that covers Mike's career leading up to and including his work at Androscoggin, and an abridged version of the interview begins with his work at Androscoggin. You are listening to the abridged version. If you'd like to listen to the extended version, please check our website for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Mike Peterson. Welcome to The Forge, Mike. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you today. After nine years at Sebastocook and 28 years, uh, depending on how you count it, yeah. uh, with Eastern Maine Health System, you left Maine and you came to, to Berlin, New Hampshire to be the president of Androscoggin Valley Hospital. So before we talk about your current role, can you tell us a little bit about Androscoggin Valley Hospital and about Berlin, New Hampshire? Sure, absolutely. Well, Berlin is a, an interesting town. And of course, it's a, it was a mill town up until very recently. It was the um, uh, second largest city in in New Hampshire. I mean, there was really behind only Manchester. Okay. Yep, that wow. was a. But when the mill closed and didn't come back, I mean, there was a, an exodus of people, honestly, because of the jobs. So it's, I believe, on its way back up. It kind of hit rock bottom and it's kind of plateaued, and now it's starting to the economy is starting to come back. But it is your pretty typical small New England. Community. I mean, the values here are very similar to the values I've found and seen in small communities across northern New England. And honestly, that was one of the main attractants for me because I did spend a little time in southern Florida um, while my wife was in grad school. And uh, it taught me fairly clearly that nice place to visit, but I really fit in northern New England. Okay. It was really about the values, the sense of community, the sense of working together, but autonomy and independence and pride in accomplishment of things that I think is rooted in this part of the country. So Berlin's very similar to many small towns across northern New, New, New England, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont especially. It's 10,000 people roughly in town, but the greater Berlin area, if you think of Gorham and Jefferson, Randolph, and up towards Milan, Errol, uh, as far as Errol, New Hampshire, you know, we serve about 30,000 roughly people in this in this general vicinity. 
Androscoggin Valley Hospital is a 25-bed critical access hospital that actually, as you can see, is a little bigger physically than many critical access hospitals because, again, it was built here in the 70s when there was 30,000 people here in Berlin alone. So it was built originally as a 94-bed hospital. Okay. Gives us some definite advantages. You know, there's some good space here that we can utilize, but we are still a critical access hospital. 20% of our book of business is inpatient, 80% roughly is outpatient services. We have a group of specialists, a lot of subspecialists you wouldn't expect to see in a small rural area, neurology, pulmonology, cardiology through collaboration with uh, uh, Catholic Medical Center, and a number of other subspecialists that, uh, again, somewhat unique to critical access in small towns. But How do you bring in all these specialists to a relatively small relatively small facility, yep. relatively small town. How do they build enough business to, to support themselves? That's a great question. Part of it is, is having enough to, to warrant the, the, the expense mm -hmm. and having the demand to warrant the capacity, if you will. So it's really about collaborating collaborating with, like, for example, uh, the, the, the cardiologist we have here is, is through a collaboration with Catholic Medical. Um, we've collaborated with other small hospitals that jointly together you have enough volume to support a full-time provider because part-time providers aren't all that frequent or it's hard to, to find them to begin with. They don't want to come work part-time. Many, If right. you're just out of school and you're staring huge student loans in the face, do you want to work part-time? So it's really about having that critical mass. So collaboration is the name of the game for those things. And you have to, I mean, if we're working with Dartmouth, you know, for example, to help with our radiology program or lab, working with other small hospitals, you gotta get to that tipping point, that critical mass. So collaboration is really how to do that. Okay. And you have Valley Birthplace and Women's Services is, mm -hmm. is one of your major product lines. I yes, see. yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's our Women's Services line, OB and Delivery. And it is now only one of two places in the North Country, Northern New Hampshire, where women can have their babies. Incredibly important because, frankly, this is a huge geographic area. So we're very proud of that service. It's a, one of the leaders in the region. We do a great job. The staff up there are really compassionate folks, as are all the staff here, but especially up there, they love what they're doing, and uh, it's, it shows. So um, it's one of our, our best areas. Roughly how many FTEs? are employed here? 320 employees okay. and about 51 active medical staff, a okay. little bit. We have a pretty good mix, too, of employed versus contractor or independent medical staff, and it, it's worked out well. So you are a member of North Country Healthcare, the newest integrated health delivery network in New Hampshire. When did this affiliation come about, and, and what was the genesis of that? So it, it officially became a system on April 1st of this year, so it's brand spanking new still, but it was a brainchild of a couple of folks who are still now in administration of this system, Warren West and uh, Russ Keen. Russ is, was my predecessor here, is the CEO at, at ABH, and Warren was at Littleton Regional. And uh, it's actually the concept started a number of years ago, thinking about how we can better serve the population of the North Country by doing just that, working together, collaborating to find those critical mass opportunities for driving out cost and driving up quality. And that's really what any system exists for, is to do those two things. And frankly, it's 
I believe because of the realization that competition is counterproductive, especially with you know, struggling economies and everybody's fighting for their piece of the pie, if you will, that isn't getting any bigger really at this point. So collaboration is far more productive, far more cost effective, and it was about bringing them together with that vision of bringing four critical access hospitals to the table to help leverage economies of scale and share best practices across the North Country. How did the system convince regulators that allowing those four critical access hospitals that are basically the sole providers in, in this area to, to together. work together, come together, yeah. and, and not say, well, that's anti-competitive and we can't allow yeah. that. I actually had to defer to Russ okay. uh, and Warren okay. a little bit on that, but from my understanding, it wasn't easy. Yeah. Um, we actually had to make agreements that, for a period of time anyway, the system would not require the exit of any service line from any one of those given communities. So we had to make commitments to the AGs and we are not intending to remove or take away any any service line from any of these communities. The, the intent is truly to grow and enhance our ability to deliver specialty services okay. close to home. But again, there's that angst and so forth because I think everybody sees the writing on the wall. Duplication of services is not cost effective. We're about driving out costs. So does that mean we're going to have to travel across the valley or up to Colebrook or, or vice versa in order to get access to the services we need? Well, that's not the intent. But everybody kind of sees, okay, regionalization of service lines kind of makes sense intuitively. How are we going to make sure that we can continue to deliver the local missions without jeopardizing, you know, or, or becoming too overburdened in terms of cost. So that was one thing I know we had to do with AAG before we got the blessing yeah. to move forward was to make a commitment that we're going to study the opportunities and study the right models and so forth in northern New Hampshire, but we will not remove specific service lines for a specific set of time. And uh, so that was, I think, what got us over the hump and we got the blessing and moved forward. That's just really interesting. I mean, there typically when I think of a uh, system, I think of something like Eastern Maine, where you've got an Eastern Maine Medical Center, big hospitals right. and anchor, and then small hospitals right. kind of orbiting around it, whereas right. this is kind of a merger of equals. It was is very unique. I mean, honestly, that was one of the things that attracted to me to this, to this role. I mean, I, I'm not a guy that moves around a lot. I mean, I may have moved around in my career, but it was always within the same system. I actually have lived in the Bangor area for the last 21 years. So I, I, to uproot my family and move to New Hampshire was a pretty risky undertaking for me. I needed to feel very comfortable with it. One of the attractants was this new system. This was a system, as you said, of equals for critical access hospitals coming together to try and achieve something. There is no 800 pound gorilla here. Right. You know, it's not somebody saying, okay, you will practice the way we do it because it's the way we do it. It's, it's an opportunity for the four hospitals to come together and say, okay, we're all critical access hospitals, so we're automatically we're all speaking the same language. I mean, there really is a difference between critical access and PPS or the, the prospective payment hospitals. Um, and sometimes things get lost in translation. Well, why do you do it that way? Well, we've got a cost report we need to worry about, so that's why we kind of look at things a little differently. That, that uh, lack of awareness or understanding wasn't even an issue. We'd all been living it. The other attractive part, I'll, I'll be honest with you, is um, I'm the first of the new presidents. So right out of the gate, um, I'm going to have tenure, if you will, over the new presidents are now being hired. When we come together to solve problems as a system, there's no baggage. You know, I, I will have not 
will not have had worked with these folks in the past as competitors and, you know, be carrying this memory from years ago. Well, yeah, you kind of slighted <laughs> me on that deal two years ago. Right. So I'm going to, no, we're starting from scratch. So all that learning curve, if you will, is, is a non-issue. We will get to collaborate and work from this point forward, which is a great and it's a real advantage, I think. But just knowing that there isn't a, you know, a hundred pound gorilla kind of out there, even if it's not, because I know I've, I've worked at those and I've been at the system and watched it. That's not the intent. That's not where people's, you know, there's no malicious effort to do that. But the perception, however, is, oh, well, they're so arrogant. They're just imposing their means of practice on me. And if I wanted to go work in and practice in like they do in Burlington or Lebanon or, uh, you know, Bangor or wherever, Boston, then I would have moved there. You know, let me practice wait. No, it's really about best practices, sharing the best practice. And those can come from anywhere, yeah. including four small hospitals. Yeah. So it was, a, it was really uh, somewhat unique in the country, I believe, of four similar sized hospitals coming together like this. Yeah, yeah I was wondering if it, if, if it is maybe the only one, or I don't know. If it, I, I yeah, don't know. Well, okay. I, it's just, <laughs> it's I just, certainly the I only one in New Hampshire, and it's the only one I've ever seen yeah. a, a system. Usually they, they evolve the way you've described a yeah. large, tertiary care center kind of being the, the the hub of a hub and spoke model and you know it's all kind of feeds to that this is four hospitals coming together to um, better serve the population of the area we cover so I wanted to ask about governance yes so uh, now that that Andrew Goggin is a member of the North Country uh, system mm-hmm. um, traditionally the president reports to a local board mm-hmm. what is your Reporting yep. structure. So I've backed into matrix reporting. I do. I am responsible f- to the local board. So I have a board chair and a board um, committees and the full board as as traditional uh, structured. But there's also a parent board that the local board actually um, reports up to in terms of ratifying our strategic plan and our budget. Um, so that's pretty traditional with system board governance structure as well. But personally, I also report directly to the system CEO, which is Warren West. Um, so I've got my boss, quote unquote, the board and at AVH and my boss, Warren West, the system CEO. And so it's really making sure that all the things we're doing are in line with the best interests of both the member organization and the parent, the, bo- the system, uh, as much as possible. Now, sometimes there will be conflict in those things, so we have to work those through. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I do have a, a dual reporting line, if you will. How does someone come to be on the AVH board? Well, they are nominated by a, a nominating committee made up of the current board members based on need. We're actually going through a governance optimization project right now, as, as it were, identifying a matrix of skill sets, representation, geographic representation, and so forth of the makeup of our current board. And we identify members of the community who have the capacity interest in doing so, reach out to them, vet them through the nominating committee. They get ratified by our local board first, new board members, that is, also have to be ordained, if you will, by the, the parent board okay. um, to sit on the local board. So, you, so. so you're looking for geographic representation. Yes. So you want somebody from Gorham and somebody from Berlin. and, and the As wide as we can right? for our primary and sometimes our secondary service area. Yes. What else are you looking for aside from geographic Well, it depends on really, honestly, in an ideal setting, you'd want a good cross-section of skills or, or interests 
based on what you're, the hospital is actually going through at the time. You know, we, we don't have board term limits right now, but we want to keep fresh ideas coming. But uh, for example, if we were getting into a major construction project, we might want to have somebody on the board who's got con uh, you know, construction management experience, or if we've got a lot of things going on with contract or payer negotiations, we might want somebody you know, well-versed in the insurance aid, uh, industry, or banking, legal, you name it. But we always want to have representation of the community as wide and broad a demographic representation as we can get. Clinical, business, financial, legal, and so forth. But again, it's got to be a, a good cross-section of well, who they represent as our community. Do some of your providers sit on your board? Yes, we always have providers. Uh, the president of the medical staff, by bylaw, is, is sits on the board, as well as we have a, a board member at large who is a physician. We're, we currently don't have nursing on the board, but we're working on that as well because it's always a good idea to have that clinical representation right at the board level. How many board members do you have typically? Well, well, it probably fluctuates a little bit. It does from time to time. We'll get a variation based on you know, departures and so forth, but bylaws allow for anything, get it right here, we've got new bylaws. Uh, I think 18 is the maximum, I think 12 is the minimum. But honestly, you want a good enough number so that we can do a lot of work from committee, through committees, and so we don't want to overburden these. This is a volunteer position, these are people with day jobs, so we want to be uh, sensitive to that. But right now we have 16 board members and we're considering whether or not we're going to backfill the other two vacant positions to get to 18. Sometimes a smaller board is a little more nimble and efficient, but it's also, again, we want to spread the wealth and, and figure out do we have all of the areas of interest represented. So we're going through that process right now with our own governance committee, evaluating, you know, are we going to keep it at 16 or drop it to 14 or through attrition or nominate and grow some more folks. What's the work of the board? What do they actually do? They are responsible ultimately for the quality of the care that we deliver. So that means they are responsible for making sure that the providers that we privilege and credential here will meet the needs of the community at the quality that the community expects. Ultimately, that is their job. They also have a responsibility to hire the chief executive and execute the policies to achieve the vision of the organization. In a nutshell, that's it. So they have entrusted me and my team to the responsibility of managing this community asset. And that's effectively, I work for them, nobody else in this building does, but they have empowered me to put into place organizational structure and policies and procedures and so forth to execute the vision of the organization, which is a collaborative definition with administration and the board. Where does strategic planning happen yep. in this organization? Board level. Board level. Uh, absolutely. Okay. This is something that, you know, strategic planning will now also take place at system level as well because strategic plan at a member organization has to support a system vision and strategic plan. This is a unique time for us. The system is so new. There is no system strategic plan, so we really don't have a current strategic plan for AVH. We have a working plan. We have a tactical plan just to stay on budget. We do have those things that we're trying to achieve for growth and service and quality and so forth. So 
that's an operational plan. A long-range strategic plan we'll get into next year. We do actually have a three-year a three -year working plan at the system that we're getting into strategic planning now. But in other systems I've worked in and member organizations and so forth, best strategic planning happens at the board level, but it happens with engagement by the medical staff, the community, including the patients we serve, the departmental leadership, and the line staff working administration, just facilitating all of that, calling out, okay, where do we want to go? How do we best cost-effectively get there? How do we grow the quality? What's our standard going to be? And how do we keep pushing that standard higher? And that kind of fleshes out the strategic plan. I see myself as the facilitator, not the definition of that strategic plan. So you report to the board as yes. well as the CEO of the system. Yes. How do they evaluate you? What are they looking at? Well, very clear Mike, goals. Mike, you did a good job. These yeah. are the things you did well. Yeah. I actually uh, just yesterday reported the six-month update status on the hospital goals to the, uh, the board committee that's looking at that. Um, there are 45 items that said this supports our work plan. This takes us to where we want to be to get ready for the long-term strategic plan. If we had a strategic plan, it would be the items on the operational plan that support the strategy. So it's very clear, very objective as well. How are we doing with the margin, service, quality metrics, people, you know, turnover, retention, recruitment, blah, 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 engagement results and so forth. How are we doing in the community? Are we giving back? Are we supportive of volunteerism and so forth? There's very clear defined metrics. There have to be because my departments have clear tactics and goals that they will feed up to the hospital goals. So I measure based on the hospital's performance, based on those metrics. That's the objective part. Subjectively, it's about how are we doing building and nurturing relationships. And honestly, I believe that these roles are all about relationships. You know, uh, nobody gets anything done on their own. We need each other and other people to get these things done. It's, it's impossible to achieve full potential doing things by yourself. So this is really about relationship management. So the subjective part of my evaluation is really, how are you doing? Have you built relationships with key community members, city management, key providers, the, the regulators, uh, legislators, you name it. That's, that's how I'm evaluated. What are the major challenges of running a hospital in the North Country? <laughs> well, um, recruitment and retention of high quality professionals who want to live in the North Country. And that's always a challenge, and that's not unique to the North Country. I think it's unique to rural, or uh, similar, common, sorry, to rural America. There is an assumption that you can't get good help up here. This is the, you know, set the B team, if you will. I, I have not found that to be true. You just have to make sure that you find the best fit. There are great providers, great staff who want to live in a rural community that and take advantage of all that these communities have to offer. You just gotta take your time to find them and then retain them. Sometimes it, it takes a little bit because you know we don't have all the amenities necessarily you'd find downtown Boston or something like that, but there are different amenities. Right. So it's really about making sure we tweak the package that we're offering to find the right candidate and spend the time doing it once as opposed to making promises, having disconnection, and then having this revolving door of in and out. This just timely, it's cost. Uh, costly and so forth and defeats morale too. That's number one. Number two is we don't have necessarily all the access to services that we would like to have and sometimes need because of that. There are other agencies that are struggling with that same thing. Behavioral health, 
substance abuse issues, again, pretty common to most cities, towns in rural America, we're struggled with them here in the North Country as well. On top of that, though, we also have the issue of transportation. I mean, there's, there's, this is a very large geographic place. The, the spots for points of care are quite a distance in, some, in many cases. And there are a lot of people who just can't get from point A to point B. We don't have mass transit. We don't have the opportunities for bus lines and so forth. So that becomes a pretty big issue for us. Beyond that, it's just you know, managing the, the razor thin margins that any small hospital is you know, up against on a regular basis anyway. Well, so speaking of razor-thin margins, mm -hmm. most community hospitals have 50% or more of their revenues coming from government sources, yes. such as Medicare and Medicaid. Yes. What's the payer mix at, at ADH? We're about the same. I mean, it's closer to 60-plus percent of Medicare, Medicaid. Self-pay makes up a small portion. We have seen it's, it's gotten better, honestly, with the ACA, the exchange products since 2014-15. We have seen a decrease in our bad debt, and that's great. So the exchange products have actually done what I think they intended to do is reduce the, the burden of bad debt. Um, commercial payers are about similar to a lot of small hospitals in rural New England. Um, but yeah, we're you know very dependent on the Medicare and Medicaid payer systems. How does the payer mix affect your strategy? Uh, well, we have to make sure that we're maximizing our critical access hospital status, which means we've got to think about that cost report and allowable costs all the time. We have to think about serving the, the state and the federal government in terms of meeting their requirements and needs. We take part in as many of the projects and so forth that we possibly can to maximize the return there, to leverage the opportunities that they both have in place demonstration projects like ACOs and so forth. I mean, we want to take part in that. And we have those payer mix because that's our population. So we wouldn't be serving our mission if we didn't take advantage of those things and actually deliver for those payers. So it changes our strategy somewhat because we have to be mindful of the fact that we are cost-based and sometimes they don't reimburse as well as, you know, the commercial insurances. So we have to, again, it forces us to be cost-conscious while maintaining the high standards of quality that CMS requires. So we have to do better with less money, and that's just pure and simple. What would you say are the skills, competences, and abilities necessary to become the president of an organization like Androscoggin Valley Hospital? I think first and foremost is relationship management. You know, just being able to work with multiple audiences, multiple people, clinicians, providers, uh, layperson, you know, board members, the community, technical staff, you name it. Um, it's really about facilitation of all these parties and their expertise for the good of a common goal. Um, I think being inspirational, so having fairly decent communication skills to uh, get people to actually follow your vision uh, is pretty important. Um, but primarily it is about uh, relationship management, I believe. You've got to know what you're talking about, Elise, as well. So there's some level of aptitude and intelligence <laughs> yeah. is required. And I pride myself on having a great memory. I can remember, yeah, a lot of things, numbers and, and plans and so forth. You've got to be able to quickly call upon experiences and apply them. I think there's a, a definite advantage in dealing with abstracts and what I kind of call spherical thinking. It's about interrelationships between, okay, well, we're talking about this over here, 
But remember last week we were talking about this over here. Maybe if we do this instead of just this, we can do both. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really about the interconnectivity of problem solutions, ideas, concepts, and so forth. That's what I, I find very and That's uh, something you helpful. mentioned you had kind of been fascinated by all the way back to yeah. your training. A synergistic yeah. approach to looking at, at uh, solutions. Yeah. Okay. How did your experiences as the chief operating officer at Sebastopol Valley Hospital prepare you for this role? Uh, very much so. The CEO, actually all of my CEOs at Sebastopol, I had three different CEOs there, were very much, uh, very supportive leaders in terms of my own career development and enhancement. So they gave me a lot of opportunity to help staff or support their functions as CEO. So I was exposed to staffing a board committee, uh, supporting the development of our final reports and so forth. And so it really prepared me for the the, the concept and the role of the chief executive beyond just you know the day-to-day -day operations. However, the importance of understanding the day-to-day -day operations of running a hospital is critical, I believe, in, in order to actually lead it from the chief executive level, you've you got to understand what's going on and with the impact potential of any decision or strategy or direction that you might take the organization in will have on the day-to-day -day operations because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we actually take care of patients and actually do the, you know, the billing and keep the, the revenue cycle flowing. Um, so it was critical to understand the inner workings before I could uh, theoretically effectively lead an organization through any kind of uh, transformation. You had you had several years of experience as you were saying on in the senior executive roles. Mm -hmm. You are now the president of a hospital and you've been in that role for about eight months now? Eight months, yes. What's and it seems like about ten minutes, so I think that's a good <laughs> sign. <laughs> what is what surprised you most about actually taking on the role? This was the hardest question I saw there. What surprised me the most? I think knowing I, I've always had that sense of humility. The the sense of, okay, this is such an important responsibility. And many times consciously on the drive in to work, I will say, you know, please Lord, help me make the best decisions today because there are 320 families depending on what we do. And, you know, in terms of a financial, just being good financial stewards of this organization means supporting all these families of the people who work here. So that's, you know, humbling. And I walk in uh, not only proud to have that responsibility, but humbled by it as well. So what has surprised me most, I guess, is the, the sheer you know, immensity of that responsibility when the buck stops here. You know, ultimately I do have the board and I leverage the board to my advantage, honestly, to say, you know, it's never just me making a decision. I leverage my team. They're amazing people. They're incredibly talented and intelligent. And together we make the best decisions. So I know I have the support. And I believe when I take something to the board or Warren, yeah, this has been vetted. This is the best idea we can come up with based on this talent pool and a brain trust we have, it's probably gonna work. So I'm comfortable there, but what's surprising is the responsibility, the accountability is still mine. At yeah. the end of the day, I need to be able to stand up, and I have you know, on occasions already, that I own it. Regardless of where it happened, when it happened, it's my responsibility. Even if I didn't make the decision, I'm responsible for it. That's incredibly uh, humbling, even more so than I thought. Before, when I was helping 
facilitate a decision as COO, advising the CEO or saying, I think we ought to do this and here's what could happen, might happen, did happen or whatever, still was their responsibility. Now it's mine. On the upside again, I do have all kinds of resources I bounce ideas on. Warren is a, a very collaborative leader as well and, and I've contacted him and said, hey, let me bounce this off you, what would you do? And I still have my father, honestly who's now retired, but he was a CEO over 27 years. I mean, so I regularly still call him and go, hey, what do you think about this? Now, I may not always take everybody's advice, but at least I have those opportunities to use people as a sounding board and get some perspective. I'm a life learner. I, I, I think, again, if I ever assume that I know all the answers, it's time to stop. You know, there's, there's always something new. Never a dull moment, never the same day twice. Again, it's, it's, I'm learning every day. So that was, I think, was the most surprising is how important it really is to yeah. be willing to stand up and say, okay, it's on me. As the president, mm -hmm. what keeps you up at night? So you land in bed and you stare at the ceiling. What do you well, think? If it's not usually, okay, where's the margin this month or how am I <laughs> going to take care of that? You know, it's really about making sure that we're doing the best by, in, in the eyes of the community, the patients. Have we made a decision? And it varies, you know, from night to night. Many nights, I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, I sleep pretty well. I mean, we're doing <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, but usually, it, you know, and I thought about this as well, the, the theme here is really, was there something we could have done differently or better in the eyes of the patient? Even a, a good decision, a good outcome, what could we have done better? You know, that's what keeps me up at night. We need to have a strong financial position Sometimes there are tight months and so forth. I'm glad to say right now we've been doing well. As far as I'm concerned, I'll do everything in my power to make sure we keep doing well and running in the black. That helps. So it's really about how can we make sure that we deliver the highest quality that these patients deserve. Let's transition talk sure. a little bit about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? I consider myself a servant leader. Okay. I mean, I'm here to you know, support the people who take care of the patients, run the business, do the billing, you name it, run the processes that we put in place. You know, take your traditional org chart, you know, the diagram, the, the pyramid, and flip it on its head, and that's, that's, we're here to support the people at the front lines. And I really believe that. That's my job is to do nothing more than make sure that we create and foster an environment where people can meet their true potential. What would you say are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? I think the ability to listen, the ability to recognize one's own limits and amalgamate great ideas from multiple resources before making a decision or taking an action and considering the impact of those actions prior to execution without being paralyzed by analysis, being willing to uh, take responsibility for the outcomes deal with the consequences, the courage of your convictions, if you will, but also the willingness to make yourself vulnerable and rely, recruit first, and then rely on the talent and the expertise that you surround yourself with. Recognizing the ability, or recognizing how best to build the team. You don't want just a team of homogeneous kind of styles or approaches or whatever. Actually, one of the, my favorite leadership books was Lincoln on Leadership. Okay. And uh, President Lincoln actually populated his cabinet after he was elected president with some of his adversaries. And really, it was to force 
the conversation about different perspectives and maybe to, again, in the interest of the country at the time, to make the best decisions. You know, if it was just my way or the highway, I mean, you're going to miss something. And so he consciously populated his cabinet of advisors with his, his opponents. And people thought he was crazy at the time, but at the end of the day, it was really about making sure you didn't miss something. Well, that's a talent as well, making sure you populate your leadership structure around you uh, with complementary styles and expertise and so forth. So the team is more powerful than any one. Can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson? Maybe you had to learn the hard way. Sure. So one of the challenges of being a leader at this level, because usually people uh, who aspire and achieve this level um, are pretty, pretty confident people, mm -hmm. and they're problem solvers to begin with, and uh, somewhat impatient. There's a degree of impatience there, and that's not a bad thing for an administrator, um, and a desire to do well and to move forward quickly and, and just keep moving on, keep solve the next problem, bring it on, bring it on. Letting people make their own mistakes and learn from them is difficult. And that was one of the lessons I had had have to learn here. Uh, it was one of, actually one of my colleagues who became made the transition from COO to CEO ahead of me, a few years ahead of me. I tapped him uh, for some insight and said, so what is the number one thing you've got to learn to do well um, when transitioning from operations to the chief executive role? And he shared with me, you've got to watch out for this. Don't solve all the problems yourself. Let people learn from their experiences and mistakes, even though you know it's a mistake. You've got to make sure it doesn't mm -hmm. negatively impact the organization. You still have the ability to veto or stop the, the process, but you've got to let them learn, and you can't tell them they have to know it. They have to learn it themselves. That's difficult, and I have learned that already. I've taken that into account and have had people you know, almost go down a path, and I'm, I continually just ask them the questions and try and draw out it and so forth, and then maybe do some of the things, and they start to realize the error or the issue, that it, uh, the unanticipated issue it caused that I anticipated, but I can't just tell them no. That's you know, not growing anybody that way. That's difficult, and that was probably the most challenging part to me is to let go of the desire to say, no, let's just do it the right way. I know it's the right way. I know you'll know it's the right way eventually, but no, to let them do it their way the advantage also up in there is maybe they're going to do it a little differently than I may have uh, assumed, and it was the right way, and there is an opportunity in there. So there's a, an advantage to that. At the very least, you know, a couple of times that's actually happened where uh, maybe I understood what somebody was going to do, they did it, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have to have this, what did we learn from this kind of conversation? But instead it was like, oh, that aspect I hadn't considered, so it actually works really well, and frankly, great. Let's go forward. So it has worked out favorably, but there are at least one example I can think of where, you know, we almost got to the point where we were pulling the trigger on something and I knew it was going to be a bad situation if we pulled the trigger, but I needed my senior director to, to know that herself. Yeah. So I let it get to that point and she stopped and came into my office and says, you know what, I've, I think I've rethought this and after thinking this all the way through. So I exhaled and said, great, <laughs> okay. glad, let's go in this direction instead. But that was probably the most challenging because I just wanted, I want to do, you know, I want to get this done and let's move on to the next problem and keep moving. But part of my job also is to grow the next level and, and develop and mentor people and that's what I really enjoy. But, uh, you know, there's some risk inherent in letting people on their own, but 
there's also value, great value in that. So speaking of sure. maybe mistakes, um, in your experience, where do junior leaders make mistakes? Do you see a pattern? Um, yeah, historically it's usually just it comes with the lack of experience and wisdom of, of especially ambitious folks, and I, I applaud ambition, you know, great. As much experience as you can gain as fast as possible, that's great for, for people who would aspire the, to this level. It's really about the lack of knowing limits or truly understanding that there's things you may not know. So I always recognize, I want to recognize, I'm sure there are things I don't yet know I don't know. And that's what I see as kind of a basic pattern is they think they know, okay, what's going on, but uh, there may be nuances or aspects of something they just haven't been exposed to before. And uh, so, you know, jumping forward very quickly um, that might lead somebody in the wrong direction, uh, you only gain with that, that experience. So uh, I think that's pretty natural. It's a natural evolution of the growth of, of wisdom, frankly. What leadership advice do you most often give junior leaders? Take the time to vet the idea uh, through your counterparts, peers, and colleagues. I mean, learn from other people's experiences. You don't have to do this on your own. Delegate the authority to actually execute it so that you don't have to do it on your own. Um, that's most of the time. You can get a lot more done through other people than doing it all yourself. But making sure it's the right thing to do. Um, there's an amazing group of talent around New Hampshire, around the country, that are willing to offer advice and share their experiences and so forth. All you got to do is take the time to tap into it. I've found, I believe personally, that it's the stronger person who's willing to say, I don't know, I need help, than the person who says, I don't need help, and then makes mistakes, you know, or, or limits their ability to achieve the best outcome. Did you have a mentor early in your career? Absolutely. Number of them. Mentors? Actually, yeah, mentors. Well, how did those people, how did that person or per people help you develop as a leader? Well, again, my father was one. I mean, I, I watched him, how he behaved. It's just the sense of values that he, you know, taught me as a child. I mean, that's where it originated. But then watching him as a, as a senior executive and a CEO of a hospital, it helped me recognize the, the importance of doing the right thing for the patients first. Everything else was secondary to that. You had to figure out how to manage the rest of it, but it was really about the, the commitment to the mission. Um, I had a number of other uh, mentors. I mentioned Jack May, um, who really taught me about, okay, how do you manage, uh, work with a board? How do you work with a system? How do you, how do you work a room? <laughs> you know, he was a great politician. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could mm -hmm. really, he, he was always smiling and always making friends. And how do you manage relationships, build and manage relationships? I had another gentleman, Ken Hughes, was a, a mentor of mine, a, a formal mentor of mine at uh, the EMHS days. And he just taught me a lot of the basics of, you know, okay, here's senior executive level stuff you got to be aware of, thinking about managing politics and thinking about you know, multiple aspects of any problem or solution. And impact analysis and so forth so but they all influence me in different ways now I always observe everybody I work with or for as well and what I try to do is you know analyze and recognize okay here's something I want to emulate and as much as and as important as 
wow, I don't want to repeat that behavior. You know, here's the stuff I wouldn't want to do or be, be known for. So um, basically everybody I've ever worked for, I've learned from. Mm -hmm. And I try to do the same for folks that work for me too. So my next question yeah. was, do you, have, do you mentor other leaders now? Yes. Um, and what do you get out of being a mentor? Well, actually, it's the pride. I mean, some of them, when, when I'm asked often in an interview, you know, what's your proudest accomplishment? It's the people. It's, it's watching people achieve more than they thought they could. And knowing that I somehow contributed to doing that, to getting, it, it, calling out that talent that was inherently in there and enabling it to, to come forth and flourish. That's, that's the proudest moments I have, is, is watching somebody maybe go from a director to a senior director or you know, to an executive level or, or achieve something they wanted to achieve, even if they didn't believe themselves that they were capable of doing it, just by asking questions and leading them to solutions, providing them resources and helping guide them along the way. That's, that's my favorite part. Are you mentoring anyone outside of AVH now? Uh, not formally currently, no, but I have many times, you know, yeah. as part of my role in, sure. in the college and as a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives, I've, I've taken on mentor projects as well. But internally, as, you know, I've got a, a few relatively new senior directors that I'm mentoring directly and growing them because, again, I think part of our obligation as healthcare leaders is to ensure the, uh, the next generation of leadership. So you mentioned the American College of Healthcare Executives. Yes. How, that, that's a professional organization yes. for healthcare executives, obviously. How has your membership in that organization been significant to you as a professional? It's, it's a great networking resource. Um, you know, attending the clusters or attending the, uh, uh, the sessions and then the regional chapter, the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives, is a great way to just connect with other people in a similar role at same, you know, it's, it's how we tap into the talent around the region and say, have you ever dealt with this? What would you do in this case? You know, what are some ideas? It's how we share innovations and best practices. That networking is probably the most substantially uh, important. Beyond that's the education. I mean, uh, now as a fellow, I have to keep my certification up and, and that's a requirement, but it's also, again, I enjoy the lifelong learning, going to hear from the expert speakers and so forth about uh, topics that the college provides reasonably priced and, and available. So it, it forces that, but also it is an opportunity to continue to learn. So that's, a, that's why I like the college very much. Being a member of the college also requires adherence to a set of ethics. And frankly, that's, I live by them. I mean, I think I need to demonstrate them as well. And it, it allows me that kind of structure that uh, I can always depend on. I'm thinking about how do I make certain decision? Well, let's pull out the college's code of ethics and they're you know, entrenched in my values alone. But you know, you can read these things and, and be guided a little bit. And the college provides that source of, uh, of resource from across the country. Some of the best minds in our industry put these together and refine them and contemporize them every year. So it's an amazing resource. If you had to pick one book for an early careerist healthcare administrator to read, what would you recommend? Well, there, I, I, there are probably two. Okay. Uh, if I, if I, I'm not sure I could pick one. Okay. One is Two's The Servant. Three. Servant Leadership? The Servant, yeah, by uh, James Hunter. Oh, The Servant. The Servant. Okay. Yep. It's really, it's a parable, and uh, Jim Hunter wrote it. It's, so it's a fairly easy read, but it really talks about this concept of servant leadership. And it's a, it makes you up and think about your own style and what you're in leadership for. 
So that's that's definitely one. The other one, honestly, I, I really like a lot is Fred Lee. Fred Lee's uh, If Disney Ran Your Hospital, and uh, just one of those books that makes you stop and think about what are we really chasing, why are we doing this, and how do we get best get to the results we want. Um, it's hard to argue that Disney knows what it's doing in terms of managing an experience. So yeah. um, this is really about uh, pulling that all together, but tying it to the, you know, the embedded values within healthcare as an industry and uh, getting people to do the right things for the right reason because they believe it's the right thing to do, not because they're in fear of non-compliance if they don't, you know what I mean? But uh, Fred Lee does a, a great job of talking about things like compassion and so forth in that book. So I'd highly recommend either or both of those books. Oh, last question. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for early careerists who are planning a career in healthcare administration? Get plenty of sleep now. No, I'm just saying. I would think that they would be best served to build their network. You know, build relationships, spend time shadowing people, get to know as many people in the healthcare organization, but also look inwardly and say, why are you doing this? What's important to you? What's motivating you to be a healthcare leader? These are not easy jobs, but it's some of the most rewarding, as I had hoped, most rewarding work you can ever imagine. I mean, being able to make a difference in people's lives daily is really important. It's a privilege to be able to take care of people when they're vulnerable, scared, hurt, sick, don't want the service you're providing. It's an honor to, to work with the talent, the, uh, the, the physicians, the clinicians, the nurses who sacrifice so much of themselves to take care of the patients every day. Being the leader of an organization that allows that to happen is an incredibly rewarding job. So I would highly recommend that they make sure that that's what they are in this for. This is not prestigious and you're never gonna get rich doing this stuff. Some people do, but that's, you know, in a, in a usually nonprofit, small community hospitals. Mm -hmm. But it, define, it depends on how you determine wealth. If you wanna go home at night feeling like you have made a difference, uh, this is a great job. And as long as you're comfortable you know, with some stressful situations and dealing with dynamics. I mean, if you don't deal well with change, wrong industry, go, go do something else. But if you do and are willing to stay committed to your core sense of values and the mission of the organization resonates with you, the vision of the organization you're inspired by, then go lead it. That's the, it's the best job on the planet as far as I'm concerned. I know it sounds a little cliche, but there is no better, more rewarding job than, than being a part of taking care of people, making a difference in their lives. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. No problem. Thanks very much. I appreciate your time, too. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.